you can decide which side you're on. You can decide whether you agree with James and you think that she's mad or whether, like yeah, me, let's you think it that... To a poll. <laughs> Not a poll. <laughs> we want, no, we want comments. Yes. <laughs> Welcome to the Booker Prize podcast. I'm your co-host, Joe Hamier. And I'm your co-host, James Walton. And uh, today, uh, Joe, we're looking at which book? Uh, we're looking at The Vegetarian by Han Kang. Well done, two points uh, <laughs> for my old days as a quiz master. Um, but um, there's two things about this that we probably should explain right at the start. First of all, it's our book of the month. It is. Uh, for the podcast. How's, how's, do you want to say a little bit about how that works? Yeah, I think it's fairly self-explanatory for our incredibly intelligent listeners i'm sure uh each month uh the booker prize will be giving you a book to read you can leave comments about our book of the month on our Substack, and you can discuss it as a community via socials you should talk about your thoughts and we're gonna have a chin wag about it ourselves yeah and if you violently disagree with us let us know but uh, obviously better if you violently agree with us let yeah, us we know that, that too <laughs> the other thing about it that i probably should explain Briefly, it was the first winner of the Man Booker International Prize in 2016 after it was revamped. So the International Booker Prize was brought in 2005, I think, and it was awarded every two years for a body of work for basically anybody who wrote, uh, whose work was available in English, but also included English uh, writers. Uh, Ian McKeown was shortlisted one year. Um, Philip Roth won, I think, in 2011, causing one of the judges, Carmen Khalil, to walk out in disgust. Um, but then it was revamped as just for a single book in translation with the prize shared by the uh, author and the translator. And the first beneficiary of that prize in, tw- in 2016 was the book we're discussing today, uh, The Vegetarian by Han Kanga. So and we should say, in, in the spirit of the prize, translated by Deborah Smith. Oh, yes, we really should. Well, then, <laughs> uh, translated, from the South, uh, translated from the Korean. She's a South Korean writer. Well, since we're still getting to know each other, I've got a question for you, James. Uh Uh-oh. So my question for you this week, James, because uh, a lot of the horror in the vegetarian revolves around food, the sight of meat, and then gradually the sight of food more generally, I'd like to know what your worst ever meal was. And it doesn't just have to be in terms of flavour or how it tasted. It can be the company you were in or the circumstances you were eating in. Listeners have had no notice of this question, and what it's caused is to flash into my mind um, a family Christmas dinner, which I, I would say <laughs> I absolutely, you know, our family Christmas dinners were great, particularly that bit where we were old enough, our parents were still, uh, you know, full of beans, uh, we didn't have any children, and it was, just, it was just the five of us. But there was one where my younger sister, well, we used to go over the road and have these astonishingly strong gin and tonics mixed by our neighbours, and then come back and have this sort of drunken uh, Christmas meal, and... My younger sister, at some point, and you must bear in mind, we've all got paper hats on and everything, <laughs> uh, and just started saying, Dad, 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 you know, we do love you and everything, but we've never really known you. <laughs> what, what are you really like, Dad? Because <laughs> the rest of us are going, stop, oh, please stop. Blood draining from his face. <laughs> all, all of us with our paper hats slightly askew <laughs> and uh, desperately trying to change the subject. And of course, she had the sort of doggedness of someone who'd been on a few gin and tonics. <laughs> no, 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 but really. Um, so, yes, that's the one that sprang to mind. <laughs> Ah, oh, yeah, emotional connection, but the worst possible accompaniment to a meal. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Okay, then, a, a blisteringly original. Um, okay, let me let me have something completely different. <laughs> What's the best meal you've ever had, John? <laughs> um, okay, this is going to sound really soppy, um, but I think Hampstead Hill Gardens, where where the pergola is, um, 
which is slightly beyond that. I went there um, with my partner and he's a kook to say the least. It was actually Valentine's Day this year. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> and um, I left it to him to organise as he should. And um, he was like, okay, I'm going to take you for a romantic meal. And then he takes out this uh, picnic basket. And I'm like, this is so great. We're going we're gonna to have a really romantic, lovely picnic on Hampstead Hill. And then he takes out a French military ration pack <laughs> that has like these tins of <laughs> duck pate and like this little um, portable, like tiny burner hob that you have to set alight. <laughs> that you would use in the military. And it was just such a left of centre move. Uh, weirdly, weirdly enough, that makes a bit of a smoothie in my, yeah. in my mind. I was expecting like, I don't know, just like a classic picnic with cheese from like, you know, Sainsbury's or Waitrose or something. And and the man had gone to all the lengths yeah, of like, so probably like, yeah, I don't know how he got a hold of it. How he got sourced it, yeah. yeah. With a couple of scotch eggs and a pork pie. No, yeah, I know, no, but it was, it was amazing and I loved it. Also quite interesting that that's what French soldiers have. <laughs> <laughs> Pate in his potatoes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so corned beef. I mean, it corn. is slightly like, you know, texturally it's a bit sludgy, but it it, it did it for me. You know, I'm going to marry him now, so oh, it, no, it must have congratulations worked. Congratulations, <laughs> hey. Uh, well, there we are. Tip for anybody, just get your French army rations in. <laughs> Uh, but, but let's let's return with some speed then to the vegetarian. The book, as I say, is, is, well, there's a book in three parts, a slightly strange book. Yes. In three slightly strange parts. Yes. So let's do um, let's do a part each. Why don't you kick us off with part one? Sure. The first part starts off with this married couple. The protagonist of the book is called Young Hai, and the opening line is narrated by her husband this section and it goes the opening goes before my wife turned vegetarian I'd always thought of her as completely unremarkable in every way to be frank the first time I met her I wasn't even attracted to her and that kind of gives you a sense of the marriage it is fairly bland young high generally cooks for her husband, keeps the house. He's not really emotionally invested in her. One imagines that before the events of this book, they had fairly stayed, irregular, infrequent sex. But Young Hai wakes up one day after a dream and she decides that she's not going to eat meat anymore. Her husband comes downstairs one morning to find her throwing out all the fish and the meat. So he gets distressed. In his view, the only reason people should change their diet or be vegetarian uh, is either uh, to lose weight or because their health requires it. And he expresses this to his wife and she really doesn't care. <laughs> she keeps going with her vegetarian diet. She tells him that he generally eats lunch and dinner out of the house anyway. So all he has to really endure is a vegetarian breakfast. And yet there is still a sense that what she is doing is causing a massive rift in their marriage and also some kind of social awkwardness. So at one point, her husband takes her to a work dinner and Young Hai sticks to her vegetarian diet without any kind of fuss. Um, and sticks to her vegetarian diet by not eating anything. Yes. Um, yeah. and, and still the wives of the businessmen present and the businessmen present are... Uh, take this as a, a form of kind of unacceptable rebellion or of kind of social transgression. It gets very, very awkward. This act of resistance is quite novel to her husband. 
And rather disgustingly, at one point, he finds himself sort of so frustrated by it as to be aroused. So he begins raping her, basically. She she won't have sex with him because he smells of meat as well. Yeah. Yeah. And although the first time it happens, she resists, eventually she she becomes passive to this too. And in the morning, she uh, kind of pretends as though nothing has happened. And he's sort of left with his guilt over the situation, really, which forments within within him as well. The uh, this section climaxes um, when frustrated Young Hai's husband um, insists on a gathering with Young Hai's family so that they can convince her to start eating meat again. Um, and they go to her sister's house. Her sister's called In Hai. And at this dinner, um, Young Hai is shouted at by her father. Is kind of admonished by her brother and mother and sister. But things escalate to the point that her father ends up hitting her. Her brother ends up sort of pinning her to a chair and her father tries to force meat into her mouth, um, even while she's verbally and physically resisting. And this particular novella ends on Young Hai slitting her wrists with a fruit knife in front of them all and being taken to hospital. We then cut to part two, which is seen from um, the point of view of In Hai, her sister's husband, yes. who's uh, unnamed, uh, who is a sort of video artist. And he has long had this idea that what would be great would be to paint people's bodies with flowers and he's a video artist and film them having sex in some way. And then he discovers that Young Kai, so his sister-in-law, had what's known as a Mongolian mark. It's a new phrase to me, actually, but it's a sort of blue mark on the buttocks, I think, which uh, for, which he finds enormously arousing the idea of this and the idea that it could be turned into painted flowers. And so he sort of pops around to her on the pretext of seeing if she's okay because she's been released from mental hospital at this time and persuades her to be painted with flowers and while he, he videos uh, himself painting her and then videos her sort of uh, naked with the flowers. She's rather willing, though. Yeah, she no, she is, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, b- 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 sort of completely, she just accepts what's happening to her, I think, at this, this, this stage. But then he brings in a friend of his. He decides, actually, what he wants to do is film her, her having sex with a bloke covered in flowers. Uh, decides he's basically too fat and ugly to do it properly. Brings in, <laughs> brings in a... Uh, a no, fitter, in a, younger yeah, friend. Yeah, it's like a rare flash of self-knowledge. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, he so he brings in he brings in a friend who uh, gets painted and everything and is happy to lie naked to her but won't go through with the full sex. At which point uh, the brother-in-law sort of, sort of calls that off. Then gets a friend of his to paint him with flowers. Goes round to Young Highs. They have sex. They then video the sex. The bad news being that by the time they wake up in the morning, his wife, her sister, is there and has watched the video. And they sort of dash onto the balcony where both of them contemplate suicide, but they're sort of straight jacketed. I don't, I don't think. He- Young High contemplates no, suicide. No, Young High might, might not, actually. That's true. Yeah, yeah no, fair dues. Uh, yeah, he, he definitely contemplates suicide. We he find does, out later. Yeah. She is just there. She, she loves being c- covered in flowers. She finds yeah. it very sort of arousing herself. Uh, so it ends on an almost cliffhanger, really. Uh, is he going to throw himself off the balcony? From where we cut to part three. Where Young High has been in a psychiatric hospital for what seems like a while. Her sister is the only person who's maintained contact with her or given her any kind of care. Young Hai's husband has long since left her and her family have sort of cut off all ties with her. In Hai is also uh, separated from her husband and kept custody of their son. And so she's balancing running a 
business. She she runs a cosmetics store with childcare and caring for her sister, while also coming to terms with the betrayal inflicted on her by her husband. And it's a huge mental load on her, which kind of gets explored in this third part. Young High's physical condition and uh, James will argue her mental condition, although I, I contest this a little bit, has um, deteriorated as well. She's found at one point in a forest having escaped from psychiatric care, sort of trying to be a tree rooted to the spot. I'm going to stick to my mental condition. In, in the rain. Up. I think it makes so much sense. We're going to talk more about it later. But yes, her, her desire uh, progressively is essentially to become a plant or a tree. And so she begins uh, rejecting not just meat and fish, but food altogether. She insists that she only needs water and sunlight as sustenance. And so there's this sort of dual narrative of Young Hai's physical decline alongside In Hai's mental decline as she kind of goes further into depression and insomnia. And I think we'll leave it there, just in case some of you are spoiler weary. That summary there's makes a it lot like, to unpack. Yeah, there is. Yeah, that summary makes it sound like an odd book, it, it, which it, it which, which it is, but it it reads more matter of factly than perhaps. Uh, a summary makes it makes it so. But, but basically, what's it all about? I suppose. <laughs> what, what makes this more complicated for me is that uh, Han Kang has sort of stressed in interviews. I think that it's not a book about the Korean patriarchy or about Korean society and the pressures that Korean society puts on women. But but, but it is, isn't it? Uh, yeah, she wants I... she wants to see it as more universal than that, and that, and that all these and that these feelings are that all you know, wherever you're from and whoever you are, maybe whatever gender you are. You will feel sometimes as if you're just enduring life, and you just want you just want out. But yeah, but it does it does feel more culturally specific. I mean, I've spent two, two days researching South Korea, so I'm not, <laughs> now you're an make, expert. Yeah, absolutely, so I know all about it. But, um, <laughs> but um, no, but I've... it does. But it, that does that does seem to be the the case to me. That, 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 there's a there's a guy called Raphael Rashida. He's um he writes in British newspapers, but he lives in Korea, and he wrote a book in Korean about Korea. Um, which is suggesting that the enormous pressure that is put on on people to they're called specs he he calls them like as in computer specifications so you need your your, your marriage is part of that um, a nice house is part of that a good job working late is all part of that but once you've got it what do you do are you happy mm. and um, he thinks there's enormous pressure and there's one one bit where he said um, when I finally realised I didn't need to follow what everyone else was doing I felt a sense of relief and release. And that's sort of what happens to Young Hai a bit, do you think? Yeah. So we should, I think, speak a little bit um, more specifically about the women in this novel, also the men in this novel, because it's not like feminism is exclusionary of men. And I think there's a potential reading, definitely for Young Hai's sister, but also for Young Hai herself, that the treatment they receive from their husbands is partly what leads to their if you want to call it mental decline, mental decline. Yeah, I mean, they're both, they're both, yes, no, I, I wouldn't dispute that for a second. I mean, to be honest, it, it starts off to me almost quite funny, that first sentence you read. Mm. Um, and, the, the, and, and you know, he's, he's sort of, he's chosen his wife because he doesn't need to sort of worry too much. The paunch that started appearing in my mid-twenties, my skinny legs and forearms that steadfastly refused to bulk up, 
in spite of my best efforts, the inferiority complex I used to have about the size of my penis. I could rest assured that it would, I wouldn't have to fret uh, about such things on her account because she's just she's not she's nothing special. He doesn't have to sort of be on. His, he doesn't have to be on his top game. Yeah, he doesn't have to impress her. <laughs> no, he doesn't. You said it, you know, it's a bland marriage and everything, and, and a bland life, and uh, it is, and that's the way he likes it, isn't it? Yeah. So he just wants. He, he, this is fine. And my wife's fine. She's not, nothing special. My job you know, requires me to be up late, but you know that's that's what life is like. And then this erupts into it. Yeah, I think it's possible to say that um, vegetarianism is potentially the first actual desire that Young Hai has expressed over the course of their marriage. Yeah. She's, you know, clearly not expressed sexual desire or any kind of financial ambition or. You know, uh, another thing that's remarked upon is the plainness of her appearance. The only thing that's remarkable about her is that she doesn't wear a bra, but her husband still finds this sort of offensive because she uh, doesn't have, quote, the sort of shapely breasts, yeah, breasts unquote, uh, yeah, that I mean, would, no, but where, where, Not wearing a bra is bad, bad enough and rude enough and everything, but especially, yeah, but especially if your breasts aren't good yeah, enough to, exactly. to, get, to, to pull it off. Don't have the tits uh, to pull it off. <laughs> no, exactly, no. But, um, um, but so, but, yeah. But, um, but, he, but as I say, he starts off as a sort of, sort of mildly if you're feeling generous slightly comic befuddled figure but he but he becomes more villainous than that yes as, but as, i as think it goes it's, on. it's it's sort of to do with um as i said it's the first time that she's expressed that she seems to have d expressed a desire within their marriage and i think he he is bemused at first that's a fair reading um but becomes more villainous because she begins expressing this desire more and more strongly um, or not well, even sort of sort of expressing it. But I mean, this is, this is backtracking a bit. But right at the start, you said she's the protagonist, and she sort of is. Mm. But as protagonists go, she's very. She never speaks no, really. She's not. She's she not there. We, we the hear end. a little bit about her dreams. We hear the odd. I mean, her only explanation to, about why she became a vegetarian is I had a dream. Yes. He, she seems to have explained it a bit because he knows a little bit about the dream. But basically, she she is just there. She's a cipher. I, I, yeah, and and he. I mean. One of the sort of villainous, maybe even slightly half comic things, even by the end, the idea that his wife is, is in a psychiatric hospital and, and is suffering badly is like one of the worst things that's ever happened to him. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, it's impacted uh, his reputation. Yeah, it has, yeah. Um, and then obviously she's seen by her, her brother-in-law in a way more fondly, but still, she's yeah, she's still sort of, as I say, as protagonists go, weirdly sort of absent. It's, it's what other people make of her in a way. Yeah. And, and, and obviously I think we're invited to make what we're invited to make of her too, which I think perhaps brings us to the, the big question that I know we disagree with. So what, what some reviewers have said, or what, what some readers have said, and seems to me to be true, whether it's a problem or not, I don't know, is that when she announces she's going to be a vegetarian, I think in South Korean society at that time, uh, people think she's, she's basically gone mad. Yeah, and I, I I would argue that the twist is that she has really. Um, you you're not quite so sure that well, she tell, has. Well, tell tell me tell me what you think first. <coughs> okay, uh, I don't think she's mad because she's become a vegetarian. Yeah, uh, I think she's. Uh, I would try to work out a theory of sort of insanity as as protest almost. Um, I don't know if you've read the book The Yellow Wallpaper, Charlotte Perkins <laughs> Gilman, a Virago modern classic, which I was thrust into my hands by my wife early in our relationship. <laughs> Obviously, early in a relationship, so so I read it. And, she wanted to start you off well, <laughs> and um, and that uh, that uh, it's, a, it's a terrific book actually. And, uh, but it's about uh, a woman who is uh, a sort of patriarchal. I think there's no bones about that one. A patriarchal doctor and patriarchal husband insist on having a rest cure following uh, 
postpartum depression. She's in more or less locked in a room with this weird yellow wallpaper that she imagines a woman trapped behind and so on. But in a way, the question in that book is, has she, has she gone mad or is she, is her madness a sort of protest, like the only thing she can possibly do in the circumstances really? Or even, even you might argue the first Mrs. Rochester in Jane Eyre. Um, I see. I, <laughs> I have thoughts about that too. <laughs> you say she's gone mad. How, okay, well, how well, are she, you she, she slashes qualifying her wrist. or quantifying that? Okay, uh, uh, slashing her wrists, mm-hmm. uh, ending up in a psychiatric hospital, mm-hmm. thinking she wants to be a tree, mm-hmm. thinking she wants to be a plant, thinking she wants to photosynthesize that she can get by without water mm-hmm. and food. Mm-hmm. Uh, come on, that's that's all pretty bonkers. I I see the direction you're heading in. She's not mad. <laughs> a little bit a little bit barking surely I mean what, I, what? so several things I'll just start with like hard facts before I build up a kind okay. of grander theory I don't think she's mad in the sense that she is actually quite lucid like when doctors are talking about her or in the moments when she speaks or when people uh kind of hold her hand or whatever she's responsive she's clear She's got boundaries and they're weird boundaries, I'll give you that, but she sticks consistently to them. She actually doesn't ask for anything insane. She asks either to be left alone or not to be unconsensually or non-consensually force-fed. When her sister holds her hand at one point, she holds her hand normally her sister's surprised by the fact that her grip is still quite stable and strong. I think she's very well aware of the fact that she's not a plant. I think she really wants to be one, but she is very aware of the fact that it's a goal, not something that she is. I think the thing that does drive Young High's actions is not insanity. It's just a very deeply rooted desire to kind of cleanse herself of all the really terrible things that have been done to her. And it is a lucid desire that is received as insanity. It's, it's only mad. It's like, it's like, it's like it's that thing only about, mad when, when, when you place it in contrast with those social norms. I think if, like, if this novel had been set up really differently, well, I mean, uh, this is sort of an inane point if we were reading a different book. But I guess it's what I mean by how impressive I find it that Hank Kang's managed to kind of rather subtly create a really tight-knit web of how morality functions in her reader's mind to make you question whether or not Young Hai is mad or, after all, is that if those, if that work had been done any less professionally if the craft hadn't been so impressive i think i think none of us would be calling her mad no okay i i, I mean i think that's maybe one thing we're it's not slightly convoluted there's, there's, two, but... there's, 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 there's two things i think i want to say which is um i mean well maybe even three uh, <laughs> uh one, one is uh, yes we're not i think it's making it seem like a puzzle to be a riddle to be yes. unwrapped and it's 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 it is one of those i would suggest almost irreducibly mysterious books she i mean i know the word kafka gets bandied about but fortunately <laughs> for my purposes it's also been bandied about by Han kang because she's a she's a fan so so you know what what does it actually 
what does metamorphosis mean? I mean, we we don't know. It's not like it's not a straightforward allegory of anything. It's just a mysterious thing, as well as everything else. And I, I'm beginning just to create a sort of bland synthesis between our two points of view, if I <laughs> <laughs> may suggest. Um, I think to say, you know, oh no, 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 she's definitely not mad, or she's definitely mad. I think that book allows us to do neither of those really. Mm. Um, and that's what makes it such an intriguing read. Uh, I I would. I know. No, it, I know you're trying to make a piece of cord, but I still I don't think no, she's mad. No, and I still mad. no, and I do, and I do still think she's mad. That's, that's so, a really. So, yes, no, so that, so that, that I think piece it's of fine cord, if that, we that, disagree. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we yeah, both yeah, love yeah, this no, book so much. Yeah, yeah. Um, something that we we should talk about here that that's interesting is where differing in our interpretations of this book is that we are of course reading an interpretation of this book it's a um in my eyes very beautifully done translation by deborah smith um yes we should speak about this because as i just about remembered at the beginning the international <laughs> booker prize uh, award is, is shared between the author and the translator yeah in this case deborah smith and then and then, and then after it won there was this thing that Got con was controversial enough to have its own gate at the end. Yeah. Hang Kang Gate. Uh, do you want to say a little bit about Hang Kang Gate? <laughs> yeah. It, in a way, it's a perfect um, first novel in translation uh, for us to look at because it allows us to to look a, look at the sort of issues surrounding translation, the difficulties and the joys of it. So um, Hang Kang Gate uh, was started um, in the New York Review of Books by uh, a writer called Tim Parks. And I'm going to quote from The Guardian here. He said, it was said, he professed himself mystified that it had won the Man Booker International Prize when, quote, the prose is far from an epitome of elegance, the drama itself neither understated nor beguiling, the translation frequently in trouble with register and idiom, unquote. And then Parks was clear that he didn't like the novel in English, but he was also clear that he didn't know Korean, so couldn't make a direct comparison with the original. Yeah. <laughs> he, is know, a he is a translator, though. In uh, internet expert. Yeah. Um, but he was joined later by um, a Korean academic called Charles Young, um, whose complaints were the following that 10.9% uh, of the first part of the novel was mistranslated, and another 5.7% of the original text was omitted. Um, and that was just in the first section. And he says, quote, it's important to keep in mind that niggling errors occur even in the best of translations and any scanty cherry picked line by line comparisons from a 200 page book will inevitably appear trivial, if not petty when posted. Um, but more seriously than that, uh, he says that there are mistranslations that sort of change the novel's meaning. So, um, the opening lines, for example, um, Han writes that the protagonist's husband never really thought of his wife as anything special. Smith renders this as completely unremarkable in every way. And he describes um, Smith's translation essentially <laughs> um, as being the contemporary style of Raymond Carver being garnished with the elaborate diction of Charles Dickens. Yeah, that's, that seems a little harsh to me. <laughs> I honestly don't know much about it. That, that seemed to be a, a consensus that that her spare prose had been sort of tarted up in some way, sex, yeah. sexed up. But but um, but I must say, if it, if it was if it was if this is the you know top uh, sexed up version of spare prose, it must have been really spare to start with. Well, because <laughs> it's still it's it, it, it's not florid as it stands, is it? So it it, it really isn't. But um, Smith herself wrote a rebuttal in the LA Review of Books, and she makes a lot of really valuable points about translation in it. Um, in the first place, she makes perfectly clear that um, 
the way this book was translated was through an ongoing conversation between her and Han Kang, where the manuscript was sent back and forth in various emails and they essentially translated together. Um, and, and to me, that pretty much seals the argument. Yeah, that's the clincher for me. Han Kang was pleased with it. And if you, you can obviously watch her being interviewed on YouTube and her English is, is pretty good. Yeah. It's, it's not, not, and, and, you know, the way this article ends is, is that Smith says there's no best way to translate, but there are a few propositions regarding translation that if generally accepted, accepted might make for more constructive conversations. Change is not betrayal. Editors exist, generally with quite firm opinions, um, and that to praise the translation is not to devalue the original. And that's where she stands. But I think along the way, there are a lot of really interesting questions that crop up. Um, the most interesting, uh, the two most interesting to me, um, are one, when you're translating into the English language, do you risk what Smith calls a kind of cultural imperialism? Do you impose Anglophone semantic fields, cultural norms and cadence, um, onto a novel that doesn't initially contain them? You know, do you change that book into something else? Um, no, that, I mean that, that that's that's got to be the heart of it, hasn't it? So you know, what what, what is a translation? Are you translating the words into English, or you're translating the book into English? Yeah. And if you're translating the whole book into English, then obviously it's going to have English yeah. uh, cadences. And and it, you know, I think to shy away from translation on the grounds that it's sort of cultural imperialism is going a bit a bit a bit a bit far. Yeah, Smith has she has this great line where she says that essentially uh, you're deluded if you're you're an English speaker and not a Russian speaker. You're deluded if. Uh, Having read War and Peace, you think you can say "I love War and Peace" instead of "I love the English translation no, of War and Peace." Apparently, Dostoevsky's names are quite, like as funny as Dickens's, but but we don't know that. Something that Yun says um, that I some find... of Dostoevsky's names, I should say. Yeah, <laughs> Something that Yun says that I find interesting is um, he he's making a point about what risks getting lost in translation, and he says that one of the many reasons. One of the reasons that many Western readers find so much contemporary Korean fiction to be unpalatable is the passivity of its narrators. Smith, however, emphasizes conflict and tension, ma making Han's work more engaging for Western readers than a faithful rendition would be. Um, yeah, that's, that is very interesting. Because even after she's done that, there's still something slightly infuriatingly passive about young high, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, it's... it's, 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 it's the book does deal a bit with how annoyed the doctors get with how annoyed her sister gets with her. And her husband. Yeah, and her husband. Just for God's sake, eat some food, love. <laughs> you know, sort of stuff. Well, I think there's a lot more to, to the idea of translation or of working between two languages. I think anyone who's bilingual will kind of understand that you don't use different languages in the same way. No. no, no, no well, if I can jolt in, because I know you are bilingual, you speak Polish as well, mm -hmm. don't you? Because I... I did, I've did, done some French, but the, the, the way I speak French is I work out the English and translate it one by one. Yeah. Very, very painstakingly. And, and then do and people immediately know that you're English? Uh, yeah, at some point before that. But, yeah. Yeah, the bit where I'm going, hmm. Uh, yeah, no, yeah, no. But no, I think clearly, that... But, so, but, but clearly that's not what bilingual is. Bilingual is you're just thinking and speaking fluency. in Polish. Yeah. And part of the work of translation, I think Smith um, tries to kind of get at in that. LA Review of Books article is that you're not just translating words, you're also translating the cultural context and political histories um, and associations that come with those words and come with them being used in any given kind of specific context. So my analogy to you yesterday was sort of that 
it's in many languages fairly difficult to translate jokes because in a lot of cases, I remember being told such amazingly dirty jokes in Polish when I was growing up by my uncles, <laughs> like really filthy stuff. And then translating them into English to try and be cool on the playground and then falling completely flat. But it was because I translated I feel, I feel them. <laughs> but it's because I tried to translate them like word for word yeah. and the analogies didn't work. The kind of, you know, verbal associations didn't work. Um, and a lot of, I guess, Smith's work that people take issue with and that she's very kind of careful with is um, <laughs> more than linguistic, I guess it's sort of social and emotive. How do you translate the way that an entire country speaks and functions to and, someone and, who has no and idea thinks of as it. well, because yeah. without, you know, it is, it is thinking, but I think she, she might've made the mistake of saying she'd only been learning Korean for three years when she started to translate it. I think. Yeah. Uh, uh, but but as as you say, and as I agree, Han Kang's seal of approval is good enough for me. Um, but also, it, it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like a book that you know could be set in London or something, does it? It feels no. It really... But I think that's the the really beautiful thing about it and about successful translations is that it basically makes the English language weird to you again. Yeah. You know, I don't think I've had a sense of wonder while reading since I was an undergraduate, and that was because you know floods of information were suddenly being flung at me and I was like, God, this is new and strange. And I felt invigorated. And what books and translations do in translation do, I guess, is kind of <laughs> they put you on the back foot a little bit because a language that you know and are fluent in is suddenly being used to a completely different purpose, whether that's in a sort of subtle way or whether it's just completely that you've never seen it being used in this context for a specific plot or for this emotive reason or, you know, to justify these moral values. Um, and I, I love it. And I think to that question of, um, you know, is it a completely different book? You know, does it matter whether you read the original or whether you have a word by word translation? I think obviously translated books are going to be a kind of relational offshoot of the original text but isn't it just so wonderful it's like you know books are like mushrooms and they're spawning yeah. you know not in a kind of last of us way where it's horrifying and everyone's dying but more in a kind of like <laughs> you know like beautiful nourishing way uh no I, 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 I do agree and also you know there is the fact that we've got no choice i mean we, we know yeah we're, we're <laughs> unless not, we go and learn a new language every single time we want to read a book in translation so <laughs> if, if a book's clumsily written do you translate it clumsily that that's 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 one that's one thing that uh, I mean I've read read a bit about this and Milan Kundra talks about this and he's he's obsessed with translations of Kafka, which mm. on the whole have tended to avoid his repetitions, tended to break up his paragraphs, tended to essentially to make him an, an easier read, um, you know for perhaps understandable reasons, uh, but, but he feels that's an astonishing betrayal. You know, if he, if he'd wanted to be an easier read, he'd have been one. Yeah, uh, but it. It's very. It's but it's impossible to know unless. Well, there's a quote from Nabokov, uh, who's says here fluent in three languages and written two of them. He believed that the clumsiest literal literal translation is a thousand times more useful than the prettiest paraphrase. Um, but he, then did, he did that Borges, to some book, didn't he? I yeah, think. He, he 
He translated something astonishingly faithfully. It's not going to come to me. Uh, but, but, but everyone just thought, well, this is rubbish. <laughs> Borges, on the other hand, says that um, a translator should not seek to copy a text, but to transform and enrich it. Translation is a more advanced stage of civilization. Um, he insisted um, that a more, it's a more advanced stage of writing. Writing spawned from writing, essentially. Yeah. And, tra and translator does have that double meaning, doesn't it? I mean, it, you know, to be translated isn't, yeah. isn't in um, Midsummer Night's Dream isn't bottom translated into an. Uh, so you just it means transformed as well as <laughs> yeah. as well as just word for word. Uh, should we end by talking about who we'd recommend this to? Yeah, um, I'm going to be uh, potentially slightly niche. Okay. <laughs> um, in lockdown, a lot of people got into. Uh, gardening or baking bread or you know that kind of stuff and i you know because i'm a higher evolved human being obviously uh, and also a wanker i <laughs> oh, no. got into oh, no, no. got into korean cinema and um my favorite is a south korean director called hong sansu and um he had a kind of a retrospective of films that were shown on Mubi during lockdown and I watched them all they're amazing and they were also sparse and quiet but there is a kind of tension at the heart of them so if you're a fan of those films I would recommend this book to you if you're a fan of probably the more uh, generally better known um, Park Chan-wook film The Handmaiden um, adapted from the Sarah Waters novel, also booker-listed, Fingersmith, I would recommend this to you. Um, I think also, I'd like this is a book that's heavy on imagery. I found it to be really cinematic. And so I'm kind of going off film recommendations. If you're a fan of French new wave cinema, I would recommend this book to you. Um, and more generally speaking, I guess, on a more personal level, <laughs> this is quite a personal thing to say, but I don't know if a lot of people feel this, but there are moments in my life where I feel like there is so much going on. I've got so much personal responsibility to my family and my work and in trying to kind of stay true to my own ambitions and desires that there is this kind of silent scream building in me that I'm not quite allowed to release. I tried it once and I was told off <laughs> very roundly. Um, and if you have ever felt anything like that, I think this book will really, really speak to you. Yes. No, I, I think, I think we have it. We, 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 in a way, arrogantly, uh, you know, dismissed Han, Han Kang's idea that it's not about South, South Korean patriarchy, but there is that universal feeling of, you know, when you've just, you just want to opt out. I mean, the, the, the slightly, um, I don't want to cheapen a version, but the, uh, Robert Benchley, the American humorist's line about, uh, I've got so much to do that I'm going to bed. Yeah. Uh, but that, 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 that's, it's that on a more scale. I think I'd recommend it to anybody who, I mean, you, you can't pretend it's an easy read exactly, but it's, but it's A, short, which is always good for a slightly more difficult read. Uh, but B, it, 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 is in, it, it is intriguing. Anybody who can read a book where you, the meaning is, is, you think you've got it, but you ha and as I say, it's not a puzzle to be solved. It's not a riddle, and the answer is this. Mm. If you if you're happy with those kind of books, I think this is one of the one of the best best around. Yeah. So it's a, it, I mean, it's, it really it really had me, and, and it and it deepens as well. So it starts off with that you know, husband, uh, with the husband as I say, almost a sort of comedy routine that darkens, and then gets pretty weird in the second section, and then the third section is pretty much flat out heartbreaking. Really, I yeah. mean, it's. it's 
Very I think strong. It, it's sort of in league with um, books like The Death of Ivan Illich, also a novella, um, or The Stranger, classically. Yeah, there is a bit of Camus there. Yeah. There is. There is. Um, so if you like those... Even if you don't really. If you like a bit of existential angst, and who doesn't take? Basically, yeah. You know, if you've ever wondered whether it's a good idea to go to therapy or not, pick up the vegetarian. What's life all about? If you ever wondered (laughs) that, (laughs) I would would go for the vegetarian by Anne King, which um, is, uh, just to remind you, uh, the book of the month, uh, Booker's book of the month for this month, and also uh, was the first ever winner of the International Booker Prize in its new form in 2016. Yeah, and we would really love you to join in on the conversation. So please do uh, write to us, whether that's through socials or you, even better, you can leave us a review with your thoughts and we will we will read faithfully through all of them and you can decide which side you're on. You can decide whether you agree with James and you think that she's mad or whether like yeah, me, let's you think that... reduce it to a poll. <laughs> Not a poll. <laughs> we want, no, we want comments. Yes. <laughs> no. We, <laughs> no, want we, no comments. we want informed and intelligent comments and we will, we will read them all. And we yeah. might even read some of them out. And, and, and the more of them that say Joe, Joe was absolutely right, the more likely you are to be to be featured on our next episode. Well, that's, that's, that's to be discussed. Uh, yeah, come on, come on with Team Mad. <laughs> <laughs> now it's time for the Booker Clinic, the recurring section in which we solve your problems, possibly by prescribing novels to read, Booker or otherwise. If you have an ailment you'd like curing on a future episode, please tell us about it on social media using the hashtag, hashtag the Booker Clinic. Who are we, who are we um, healing today? Well, a non, obviously. Okay. <laughs> a non because of the slightly controversial nature of the question. Uh-oh. Uh Question goes, I've been having an affair for about two years. What books can help ease my guilt? Well, oh, I mean, I don't want to come over too. <laughs> I don't want to get in touch with my inner Catholic too much here. But uh, you know, what, what about um, stopping the affair? That would sort out your inner guilt. <laughs> but anyway, um, leaving, leaving that aside, uh, <laughs> slightly self-serving this. I, I, it's very... Um, it's very hard, uh, 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 despite my cunning pretense there, we do have a bit of um, foreknowledge of these questions. And um, I was. it is hard to find a book where... I certainly can't think of what, well. <laughs> yeah, where adultery is like great and guiltless. Yeah. I mean, isn't that part of the part of it? Certainly, certainly all the... I mean, the great, the great... I can give you a few great adultery books... Yeah. Even leaving aside Anna Karenina and Madame Bovary, um, <laughs> like the two key novels of uh, European novels of the night, you know, that the, the adultery is, is the big is the big question there. Uh, um, John Updike d- does adultery uh, in, in in both senses uh, a lot, um, and there's um, a collection of his short stories that spread over many years, which is unbelievable detail of his unbelievable autobiographical detail of his marriage, really. The Maples stories, story. So a couple called the Maples, and it follows their early, uh, his early marriage to his wife, um, his uh, moments of um, infidelity, the time when it eventually uh, the infidelity. In, in up to there's normally a sort of practice run, and then, and then um, so has one affair where he's determined, he thinks that this is it. I'm going to leave my wife and children. Um, but he's quite good on the unsparing a bit. bit of, you know, he says the erotic impulse will, will tolerate a lot of damage. You know, you can damage your wife and your children quite badly just to get you, just to follow your penis, essentially. Um, and there's a, 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 um, the, 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 eventually 
in there. They're all present tense uh, titles, the Maple stories, but I think they're collected together. They're unbelievably brilliant. But there is one called Separating, where it's the one where he has to explain to his kids, um, you know, that, that this is it now. This is their last meal together. And I'm, you know, although me and my wife, my, me and your mother still love you very much. I'm going off with this other woman. And uh, the son says to him, why, dad? And he realizes he has no idea. That's mm. uh, it, 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 brilliant. And if you want to, from a woman's perspective, I, I would say Heartburn by uh, Nora Ephron, which is famously based on her, her own. She was married to Carl Bernstein, the Holly, uh, Watergate reporter, who went off with, who had an affair with Margaret Jay, who was not only the wife of Peter Jay, the British ambassador to Washington at the time, but also the daughter of um, James Callan, the British prime minister of the time. And Nora Ephron writes about it. I mean, she's as ever funny, but it's but pretty unsparing as well about what it does to, does to her. Uh, so that, that, that's not going to assuage your guilt, I'm afraid. Well, actually, you, you know what? No, don't be so moral, James. <laughs> okay, sorry. <about> <laughs> <laughs> I scare people off asking questions. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I, I'm actually quite struck by you kind of um, quickly shrugging off Anna Karenina and Madame Bovary. I know the women in those novels don't come to particularly um, great endings, but I feel like uh, both Tolstoy and Flaubert, what they do very convincingly in that might actually help ease your guilt even though honesty is always the best policy sound mm, like my mother yeah, yeah. um not sure about that but um, um is that uh what they do for you is frame why it's understandable in the sense that you know emma is cooped up in this town that she didn't really ask to be in she has no kind of financial recourse for her desires you know all she really has to do is sit about the house and wear kind of pretty dresses while she dreams of a larger life and an affair is what enables her to kind of no have a will to live no no even. i have a love of that bit where she shouts but i would if this is a letter from a woman i would uh suggest the philip roth thing about basically every every man starts off as far as it, his woman is concerned as sort of Rudolph, the most glamorous thing in the world that ends up as Charles Bovary. <laughs> so he will end up as Charles Bo <laughs> He will end up as Charles Bovary in the end, however glamorous he seems now, essentially. Uh, again, I'm not sure how helpful this is, but if you want um, a portrait of ad adultery analysed in a completely sharp, brilliant and unsparing, but also funny and sympathetic way, uh, you could try Talking It Over by Julian Barnes uh, from 1991, uh, in which you have separate, three separate narr narrators the two blokes are after the same woman and the woman and um it's uh, it, it's it's a great book i don't know whether it'll assuage your guilt about uh adultery but it might uh, uh entertain you as you as you what's the word uh what do you do with guilt as you squirm <laughs> <laughs> but it might entertain you a bit as you squirm well that's all from us today um if you enjoyed this episode, we would really deeply, ferociously encourage you to leave us a review. It's the only way we can grow this podcast and it would mean a lot to us, wouldn't it, James? It would. In fact, the only adverb I'd add would be needily. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, thank, thanks very much for listening and thanks, Joe. It's been fun as ever. And as well as leaving us a review, if you want to check out more Booker Prize content, you can find us on socials at, at the Booker Prizes or you can visit the Booker Prize website uh, which is at www.thebookerprizes.com. 
That's right. And if you've ever wondered why that plural is there in Booker Prizes, it is because of the International Booker Prize as well, isn't it? That uh, I'm looking around for my my Booker colleagues for confirmation. Yes. Yeah. So that, that so that so now you so now you know. But it's been uh, it's been fun as ever, Joe. Thanks very much, and thanks to everybody for listening. Until next time, goodbye. We'll see you next time. The Booker Prize podcast is hosted by Joe Hamia and me, James Walton. It's produced and edited by Benjamin Sutton, and the executive producer is John Davenport. It's a Daddy Super Yacht production for the Booker Prizes. Mm-hmm.